You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 2, The Structure of the Encyclical Veritatis Splendor. Before we begin to look at the details of the text of Veritatis Splendor, using the preface for an overview, and then undertaking step-by-step step, going through all of its parts, I'd like to spend a little bit of time just looking at the structure of the whole. If we can do that, we avoid missing the wood for the trees. We'll know where we are by understanding the general movement of the thought of this particular encyclical. And it's crucial for doing it in encyclicals. You know, the, the writing of encyclicals, as you know, can be sort of a sure cure for insomnia. There's an easy way in which one can try to fall asleep. But there's a, a very strong theme here to this particular one, and I think it rebears uh, our consideration. Uh, what I do, by the way, just to try to work my way through this, was a, a technique that I've, I learned when I was in a Shakespeare course in college. I was, in the course of that uh, two-semester course, we were reading through every blessed play in the canon of Shakespeare. And the way in which the teacher would test us would be by taking little gobbets of five or six lines, and he would want us to tell what play, what act, what scene, who was talking to whom about what. And we said, how are we ever going to remember what scene? But the way he proposed to us is a way that worked for that, and I use it now for my project of reading encyclicals and of other technical pieces of writing, he said, don't go just reading the cliff notes. Write the cliff notes. That is, at the end of each scene, write one sentence of summary, so that by the end of an act you have five or six sentences, by the end of a play, 35 or 40. As a matter of fact, we could do outstanding work on the tests. But then the papers virtually wrote themselves, because we had charted out the way in which the plot turns had worked, or in a way in which character development had occurred. It was a marvelous technique for Shakespeare. It's a great, marvelous technique for reading an encyclical. Perhaps just to take a given paragraph, which are sometimes somewhat lengthy and sometimes fairly abstract, and to force yourself, with your own pencil and paper in hand, at your keyboard, to force yourself to try to understand what is in this particular paragraph. By the end of a, pair of a document like Veritatis Splendor, you'll have about 120 sentences, and you will have understood the flow of the argument. It's what I use, and I'd like to recommend it to you. The encyclical Veritatis Splendor is divided into three main parts. That is, after a short prefatory section, there is a part that is very deeply biblical. Secondly, a part that engages in more theoretical argumentation, not just philosophical, sometimes some more abstract theology, but it's definitely a theoretical section, and that's a part that's given over to the review of some of the important erroneous themes in contemporary moral theology and their corrective. And then thirdly, there is a pastoral section. This document, after all, is written to the bishops. And so he wants, Pope John Paul II wants very much to engage them at the pastoral level about how they are to make good pastoral use of the resources of this encyclical on fundamental moral theology. Now it's my thesis, and I'll be arguing this in various ways as we go forward, it's my thesis that this particular way of structuring Veritatis Splendor is deeply related to how the Pope John Paul II 
how the church in general, and very specifically to how the Catechism of the Catholic Church, urges that we understand scripture. I'll devote more time to that topic when we get to Lecture 6, but right now here in Lecture 2, what I'd like to do is to just run through it briefly and then use it for the sake of our review of the contents and the general structure of Eritata Splendor. In your catechisms, that is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 101 to 130 are about the scriptures, are about revelation. And in addition to going through the difference between the Old Covenant that generates the Old Testament and the New Covenant that is at the heart of the New Testament, and in addition to all the other groupings of the various documents that constitute the Bible, you will find uh, explained very well an account of the four senses of Scripture. And this is something that is deeply important. Let me just mention them briefly. First level of Scripture is called the literal sense of Scripture. The other three together are called the spiritual senses of Scripture. Now on that first point, the literal sense of Scripture is almost always misunderstood. Many people think that the literal sense of Scripture means that everything in the Scriptures is historical. And that's not the case. There are plenty of figures of speech, there are plenty of stories, there are parables, there's all sorts of things. What the literal sense of Scripture means is what the human author under divine inspiration intended. If the human author was intending history, then the literal sense is historical. If the human author was intending a figure of speech, that's the literal sense. If the human author was intending a very elaborate comparison by way of a story, that's the literal sense, because what the literal sense means is what the human author, under divine inspiration, intended to say. Within that literal sense of scripture, one can find three spiritual senses. We'll go through these more carefully in Lecture 6, but in general the names are the typological, the moral, and the anagogical. The typological simply refers to this. The life of Christ is the controlling text. And the Old Testament is being talked about through the life of Christ. So that if I use my left hand to envision the life of the history of the people of Israel over the course from Adam through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through Jeremiah, and so on, the life of Christ is the anti-type and the life of Israel is the type. At each stage in the life of Israel, there is something that is parallel to it in the life of Christ, but that at each stage, Christ is the new Adam, Christ is the new Isaac, Christ is the new Moses, Christ is the new David, and so on down the line. But at each stage, the life of Christ completes what is incomplete in the life of Israel. At each stage, Christ perfects what is still imperfect in the life of Israel. At each stage, Christ sanctifies what is sinful in the life of Israel. This particular typological sense, the way in which Christ brings to completion, but also corrects and completes and sanctifies the life of Israel, this is a sense that is already present in the Old Testament, whether the human author knew it or not. It is the first of the spiritual senses because the Holy Spirit intended it. Secondly, there is the moral sense. And the moral sense refers to what it is that God is teaching us through revelation. Sometimes the human author fully gets it. Sometimes the human author only understands it partially. Yet the Holy Spirit has insisted that it be there. 
it's easy to find some of the texts which show us the moral sense when we look at, say, the Ten Commandments, or look at the two great commandments of love that Jesus utters. But it's equally present when we have a story like the story of Nathan and David, when David has sinned and the prophet Nathan must come to him and tell him a parable that really enrages David. What if a, little, if a man who only had one poor little sheep whom he loved was approached by a much wealthier neighbor who had plenty of sheep, but wanted this one man's sheep brought to him, this little lamb, and served for dinner because the richer man didn't want to part with any of his flock? Well, David grows enraged. And Nathan says to David, and you are that man. A way in which to get David to reflect in his soul on the great dastardly deeds that he has done with adultery and murder. It's part of the moral sense of scripture. Thirdly, there is the anagogical sense of scripture. You could call this the sacramental sense or the pastoral sense. And it's how we go back home to God. The sacraments take us back home. And there are things that are like the sacraments in the Old Testament, as well as the things that we as Catholic Christians count as the sacraments of the New Covenant. These two are described within the scriptures. I'll say more about that in detail, and we'll look at the Catechism when we get to Lecture 6. But I simply mention it here because I think that the structure of Veritatis Splendor is designed to appropriate that sense of the fourfold levels of meaning in the scripture. The literal sense in this particular case will be especially associated with the first chapter. What we will have in the first chapter of Veritatis Splendor is the story in Matthew chapter 19 of the encounter of Jesus with the rich young man. And that rich young man, as you well know and as we'll see when we start to study the text of Veritatis Splendor, that rich young man comes to Jesus asking what he must do in order to attain eternal life. Jesus tells him that he must keep the commandments. The young man asserts in a very bold way, I've already done that. What more must I do? He has a hunger for more. And then Jesus goes on to insist, well, you should go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then come back and follow me. Now, at the literal level, this is an encounter Jesus actually had with a rich young man that was recorded by the gospel writer, the evangelist, St. Matthew. And so at the literal level, we have that text. We would do well to read it. Perhaps in between the lectures, you might want to get that passage out and read it yourself and pray over it. In a way, that's the literal level. But then also within chapter 1, as we see it unfold, chapter 1 will give us in many respects the typological reading. That is, it shows us Christ with this rich young man, because this rich young man who is well-educated in the traditions of Judaism, and who is acting nobly according to his lights, nonetheless, he is, in a way, stuck. He's unable to make the move beyond the commandments. When Jesus urges him to go and sell all that he owns, give it to the poor, and then to come and follow him, what Jesus, in many ways, is doing is showing us not just the commandments, but what the commandments most deeply mean this great care for the other person, this willingness to make a total gift of yourself. That particular passage has long in the history of Christian thought been the source of what are called the counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, things, vows that every religious takes. And in the course of the giving of those counsels, Jesus is showing him a higher way, something else that he must do. It responds to the yearnings of his heart 
for really answering God's call, for what he knows within him he ought to do. And so Jesus is leading him beyond the place where he is stuck, leading him to the freedom of the life that really is committed to our Lord in a radical way, complete and entire. He is showing him the way in which he needs to become a disciple and to imitate Jesus. This is deeply associated throughout the whole of Christian interpretation of Scripture with the typological sense of Scripture. What it is that the Gospel writer has done at the literal level, the Holy Spirit has introduced at the spiritual level, guiding the human author in what the human author wrote, in this case, St. Matthew. I think that much of what goes on in the first chapter is this interplay between the literal level and the typological level. We also see some of the introduction of the moral level. That is, as the Holy Father will show us when we start to look at the details of the text, John Paul II is showing us the moral meaning of this. And the way in which he undertakes that project is to say that the great desires of the young man who has come to Jesus in this encounter, the desire of this young man is to live according to God's will. And he has already tried to do it by keeping the commandments as perfectly as he could. And yet he has a sense that it can't be merely a minimalist understanding, a legalistic understanding of what the demands of the commandments are. And that he must respond to them with his whole being and with his whole heart. He must go in the direction in which the commandments are pointing beyond merely a minimalist interpretation. John Paul II relies on that. And so within the first chapter, it strikes me that he's operating something like a Polish onion peeler. He's got an onion, and he's going to take off one layer and look at the meaning, and then he's going to take off another layer or two. Hopefully the tears won't get in the way from peeling an onion. But he'll see more deeply what is already contained there within the scriptures. I picture John Paul II, in this particular encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, unpacking for us, disclosing for us, revealing and uncovering for us a deeper meaning of what this scriptural passage is about. It's at the literal level because it's an actual conversation that Jesus had with someone and that the human author wanted to report the details of that conversation. But the Holy Spirit has brought about a deeper level of meaning, we're not adding that meaning in. We're discovering it like the onion peeler discovers the inner layers of the onion. Now, let me just talk about that for just a minute before I go on to the second chapter. Sometimes when we're doing, making use of the scriptures, sometimes people find a scripture that they think applies to them in a special way. I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. If you use it in the course of your praying, I think that's very valid. As, a, as someone who frequently gives retreats, I will often, knowing where a particular retreatant is or where a group is, I will of, often refer them to a particular passage of Scripture and say, now you should think about this for yourself. For instance, the vine and the branches by itself is a parable in Jesus that occurs, a, par a parable in the Gospel by Jesus that occurs within the, the, the conversations Jesus is having. But in that passage of the vine and the branches, I think it's John chapter 15, initially it's about the unity that is needed in the church. We need to stay united with Christ so that we, the branches, will continue to be fruitful. And apart, he says, apart from me, the branches will cease to bear fruit. They will dry up and wither away. 
That passage, while it's primarily in its literal meaning presented by the human author as something Jesus said, and is intended by him to suggest the way in which the church needs to remain united, it could also apply to a family and their need to stay united, or to a religious congregation. I think that's an applied meaning. The technical use within the tradition of the interpretation of scriptures is to call that an accommodated meaning because we're reading something into the text. Neither Jesus, nor the Gospel writer, nor as far as I know the Holy Spirit, intended it to apply to my religious family or to my natural family. It's a legitimate accommodated meaning, but it's not like finding the meaning that's already in the text. These four senses of Scripture, the literal, the typological, the moral, the anagogical, these four senses of Scripture are in the Scriptures, God put them there. And so what John Paul II is doing is relying upon this wonderful pattern of the church's way of interpreting the scriptures to do some marvelous work for fundamental moral theology in Veritatis Splendor. Just by the by, you'll also see that same technique at work in Evangelium Vitae, the wonderful encyclical that John Paul the Great wrote about the life questions. There, in the first chapter, in fact, the first two chapters, what we have are this concentration on the literal and the typological. There, the story is about the first murder, and the whole of chapter one of Evangelium Vitae considers the relations of Cain and Abel. And again, using the techniques of my Polish onion peeler, John Paul II unpacks the text of Genesis to show things that are in the text, that are part of the Holy Spirit's intended meaning, that we might not have seen. He does a similar thing using some of the gospel passages about Jesus' teaching on violence and also on the life issues that come from the gospels. And it's only in the third chapter of Evangelium Vitae, like the second chapter of Veritatis Splendor, that he turns to the use of theoretical reasoning. In that particular case, he'll use it for the defense of unborn life against abortion and of very nascent life with regard to the defense against infanticide, as well as the defense of attacks upon um, the aged and the infirm uh, dealing with his own prohibitions on euthanasia. So one sees that same technique, namely a focus in the first chapter, in the case of Evangelium Vitae, the first two chapters, a focus on the use of the scriptures, in the second chapter of Veritatis Splendor, in the third chapter of Evangelium Vitae, a use of theoretical reason in order to think through the moral questions. And then in the final chapter of both encyclicals, something closer to the anagogical sense of scripture, namely this reliance upon the church's pastoral concern and the way in which these texts do have an important implication for how it is that we work at the pastoral level. Here, within this particular one, what we find is a, uh, a strong sense then and throughout the whole of the first chapter on the very careful and depth interpretation of a gospel passage. And I am just really convinced that John Paul II wanted to do this as a kind of model for how moral theologians ought to operate. Seeing the directive in the Second Vatican Council, especially in its decree, Optatum Totius, number 16, directing that moral theology in the seminaries and hopefully in the universities be taught with a much stronger, more pervasive, much more deliberate use of scripture in its context, in the way in which we can understand what the Holy Spirit intends to teach us by the scriptures. 
I think he wanted to model that for moral theologians, because in the time after the Second Vatican Council, in the 70s, in the 80s, up till the time when he wrote this in 1993, I think that perhaps there was a certain disappointment in him that some of the moral theologians of the day had not yet adequately responded to this summons in the Second Vatican Council to do more than merely proof texting with their use of scripture for the sake of moral theology. I think he's giving them a living example of how to do it. Let me move on now to the second chapter. The second chapter is admittedly something that is much more theoretical. It is now a concern with four tendencies that the Holy Father thinks of as erroneous in the recent decades of Catholic moral theology. He wants to pinpoint what the nature of the problem is, and then he wants to make the corrective so that everyone will be able to see why we need to say it this way rather than that, to argue it in this fashion rather than that, to draw this consequence and to avoid that one. He's very, very concerned with these. Here, too, I have a little mnemonic, a little device that I hope will be helpful to you in understanding the nature of the second chapter. I'm sure you know about the difference between good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. We have the same word cholesterol, but we know that some of it is quite good for us and good for our system. It doesn't present any particular problem. But there's also a bad cholesterol. There's something that comes and hardens the arteries. And yet we sort of get the idea when the doctors are trying to inform us of the nature of the biochemistry here, they use the same word cholesterol, but suggest a good and a bad form of it. I think the same thing is the case here in the second chapter. Namely, the tendencies that the Pope has noticed in modern moral theology in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, sometimes they use the same word, but they have a different meaning for it. To go back to the distinction that I was drawing at the end of the first lecture, it would be nice if words were used univocally, with one and the same meaning in every context. The word freedom, for instance, the word conscience, the word autonomy, the word fundamental option. It would be nice if we used those words univocally. But the fact of the matter is, John Paul II has urged, in the course of modern moral theology, the same word gets used, but with very different meanings. Maybe the meanings are analogical because they're at least related, but they're not the same and they're in danger of being equivocal. On conscience, for instance, there are theories of conscience which are very subjectivist and have no purchase on the truth, whereas the theory that he wants to use is one that talks about conscience as existing within the subject, the moral person, and yet has to be guided by an objective truth that it did not create, that it cannot control, that it may not alter. And so what we find is the use of the same word, but it's practically a different term. Truth to be told, I think that in some textbooks of modern moral theology, the word is used exactly the opposite to the way in which the church uses it. It fits into the theory that they are proposing in a way that it is entirely antithetical to the way in which the church intends that we understand a particular part of moral reality. Hence, this second chapter is designed in a theological way to point out the good cholesterol and the bad cholesterol meaning of these terms. You will find within the second chapter that it has four parts. The first one is a, part, is a section that deals with freedom and truth. 
And the reason for doing this one as a start is that so many of the questions of contemporary culture are about human freedom. Cultures around the world want very, very much to be free and to cultivate freedom, and yet sometimes that freedom turns into mere license, as though freedom were the power to do what you want, or perhaps in a negative sense, to do what you want and not be interfered with, not be controlled by anybody else. But that freedom, that meaning of freedom, is highly antithetical to human morality, is highly antithetical to God's will. And so what John Paul II will be doing in the first section of chapter 2 is to talking about how the good cholesterol sense of freedom is a sense of freedom that is deeply yoked with the truth about our human nature. As John Paul II always liked to do from his opening gambit, the encyclical Redemptor Hominis, he wanted to talk about the truth about man. That is, his way of saying, there is a reality to us that is already determinative for the norms of morality, and that once we understand what man is, we'll understand how we ought to treat him. But for John Paul II in Redemptor Hominis, we won't fully understand what man is unless we, uh, we look at Christ, because Christ shows man to himself. So the first section of chapter 2 is correcting misunderstandings about freedom and truth. The second one has to do with law and conscience, because sometimes there is a tendency in contemporary culture to think that conscience is simply my own inner sincerity with my chosen principles. John Paul II thinks that that badly misunderstands what conscience is. Conscience instead is a judgment that the individual must pass as if in a courtroom, must pass upon the actions already performed, right now presently being done, or actions in the future. But we inside us must pass judgment on those actions in light of standards we did not create, control, or alter. Those standards are the Decalogue, that is, the laws that God has given to us on the commandments, the two commandments of Christ, love God with all your mind and heart and soul and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the standards by which we ought to be making those judgments, so that there's no antithesis, there's no hostility in a proper understanding, the good cholesterol understanding, of the relation between law and conscience. The third one is something called fundamental option theory. And here, too, there's a good cholesterol sense and a bad cholesterol sense. The good cholesterol sense is this. It can be so helpful for one's moral and spiritual life if one has a deep and profound commitment to Christ, a deep and profound commitment to our faith, a deep and profound commitment to the church. Because that radical commitment will give us energy, give us enthusiasm. It will be a source of motivation for all the particular things, all the specific choices, all of the sacrifices we have to make. That's a perfectly good cholesterol sense of fundamental option. Unfortunately, in the recent decades of Catholic moral theology, there was another tendency at work, a tendency to use the term fundamental option for a bad cholesterol sense. And in short, we'll do more with this when we get there, in short, what that bad cholesterol sense is this. If I have a fundamental option, if I have a fundamental commitment, why then the morality of all the little actions that I do don't really count in and of themselves. 
The only thing that gives them any moral evaluation or moral coloring is the fundamental option. For some people, this emerged because they couldn't imagine somebody who had a great fundamental commitment to Christ or to the church sinning perhaps repeatedly, or sinning, going to confession, sinning, going to confession. That seemed to them to be a ridiculous way in which to describe how this worked. And so they tended to downplay the morality of individual actions and individual choices and to put all of their moral eggs in the basket of a fundamental option. John Paul II was strong that this is actually deeply and deeply wounding and damaging to real morality. We'll look at that when we get to the third section. The fourth section of chapter two is one given to the question about teleology, a fancy word used in moral uh, theory for end directedness, consequences. How do we evaluate the consequences of a given action? The utilitarian version of this, whether it's in the form of proportionalism or consequentialism, is the bad cholesterol version, as though that were the only standard for moral consideration. The good cholesterol sense of teleology is appreciating the end to which we are pointed and understanding how to bring the evaluation of consequences into our moral analysis. Finally, there is a third chapter, and that third chapter is a remarkable one. It is about the pastoral sensitivities that the church, especially her bishops, must show. And so what the Pope does is talk about the pastoral implications of living out moral theology as understood in the course of Veritatis Splendor and the church's tradition. There's much to say about this third chapter, but especially it's a call and appeal at the pastoral level to the energy and commitment that is needed. And in particular, there is a wonderful, fascinating section on martyrdom. And the reason why there's a section on martyrdom there is this. The Pope is mindful that holding fast to the moral truths that are taught to us from God, taught to us by the Ten Commandments and the other parts of divine law, taught to us by looking at our own nature, the nature in which the author of our nature has inscribed certain norms, holding fast to those particular moral truths and moral principles may well require us to sacrifice of various sorts, even sometimes the sacrifice of our lives in the way that the martyrs had to do it. And so he gives us a profound reading in the third chapter on the holiness that we must cultivate and the preparation for giving witness, even perhaps the witness of our lives in martyrdom. These are the three chapters that make up the structure of Veritatis Splendor, and beginning with our next lecture, we'll have the opportunity to start to consider the text in particular. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.